So now, that said, uh, take a look with me at the 14th verse of Romans chapter 15. It's a, it's a neat little concise statement on the part of the Apostle Paul, and one that, that, um, that I, I look forward to commenting on it. And he says this, oh, by the way, well, let me just read it first. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. From this point in the book, from verse 14 and on, Paul is wrapping up his whole letter to the Roman church. Um, In this latter section here, uh, a chapter and a half, he mentions his purpose for writing the book. He mentions some future travel plans that he's got to, to Spain. And then he sends greetings in chapter 16. And then he's done. Um, he started his book uh, in the first, really, the first 17 verses of chapter 1. He started his book as a letter, as a letter to the church at Rome. And then after that 17th verse, he launches this great theological opus of his, this treatise of justification and sanctification and, and all that uh, surround those two great doctrines. I mean, so from 117, really, to 15 through 1513, he is involved in this theological uh, statement of his, his whole, uh, his, the, the, the sum of his whole theological system is in that book. Um, so he started as a letter, he, then he launches that theological opus, and then here in verse 14, he returns or resumes his letter. You'll notice, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. Uh, he's, it, this is kind of the, the wrap-up to the letter. He's, he's finished with his theological stuff, and so now he's saying just some things in terms of, by way of uh, goodbye to, the, uh, to, the, uh, to his readers there in the church at Rome. And he leaves them, uh, in verse 14, with, uh, with an assurance that he is uh, well satisfied as to the reality of their professions of faith. He said, I am satisfied um, about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. He is, um, he's assuring them that he has a very high regard and trust that, that their, their claim to a, a relationship with Christ is a real one. Um, and then having said that, he, he gives us three reasons why he is satisfied. He says um, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, guys, if, um, if this is Paul's way of complimenting a group of Christians, if, if this is his way of complimenting a church, um, then what he is also doing, I think, is giving us three criteria by which we might evaluate and measure another group of Christians. This one. Paul says that he's really, he really feels good about that church in Rome because of three things that he knows about them. They are, um, they're full of goodness, they are filled with knowledge, and that they are able to instruct one another. You know, oftentimes, guys, when you're studying the Bible, 
one of the questions that you ought to ask yourself is um, not what he does say, but what he doesn't. Paul is, Paul is um, impressed favorably with the church at Rome. And what three things stand out to the Apostle Paul? Oh, you folks are good givers there. Oh, you folks are great evangelists there. You people have marvelous programs in your church. He didn't say any of that. So the things that registered to the Apostle Paul when he got ready to assess a group of Christians, a collection of Christians there in Rome, the church at Rome. So there are these three things. You're full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge. And um, you're able to instruct each other. So I, what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is if that's, if that's Paul's way of drawing out three characteristics that he would like to illumine or, or draw attention to, by way of compliment. And it also gives us three criteria by which we might measure this group of Christians or any group of Christians. So the first thing that he mentions is that they're full of goodness. It's a real interesting um, Greek word that he uses and that it's translated uh, goodness. Um, it's interesting because the, the word, for those of you, it's, ago, it's agathosune. Um, it's interesting because it's translated so many different ways in the New Testament. It's, um, it's translated generosity in one place. It's, um, it's, it's translated uprightness in another, way, in another place. It's translated kindness in another place. <clears throat> it's a word that had a, it, it was full of um, nuance. And so it, it's pregnant with meaning um, because it can be, it, can, it includes a, a whole lot of different things. Kindness and thoughtfulness and, and um, generosity and a concern for the poor and all those things. He says, um, you know, I'm really impressed with you guys there at Rome. Because of your agathosune, which includes all these things. But, the, but the, they could be summarized under the one heading. The one thing that impressed him was character. He was impressed with a, um, a certain godliness of character that existed in the church at Rome. Character, ladies and gentlemen was always, was always a concern to the apostles. Um, he wasn't so concerned about um, attendance or um, he wasn't so concerned about, uh, but he was always mentioning character. They were full of goodness. And again, even for us, the word, when we say, oh, she's a good person. That word has got all kinds of stuff that's stuffed in there. And it can be understood in a whole lot of ways. That they're generous, they're thoughtful, they're kind, they're, they're upright. Um, 
But that was one of the things that impressed Paul about the church at Rome. That there was a... a serious development of Christian character. Now, the second thing that he mentions is that they were filled with all knowledge. Hey, guys, um, I want to warn you. I think at this moment, you should... You should be on guard. I think you should. Um, I think you should consciously say, "No, wait a minute. Now, I'm not sure everything that he's saying is the, is right." I think you um, ought to take great care to listen to what I'm about to say and then evaluate it in a way that uh, might lead you to dismiss a lot of what I'm saying. You know, one of my heroes is a guy by the name of Edmund Clowney. He's the one that I first heard say that Christ lived the life that we were supposed to live and died the death that we were supposed to die. That's, that's one of my, um, I love to say that. And, um, but another thing that Edmund Clowney said uh, was um, that, the, that the word should drive us to the pulpit, never the pulpit drive us to the word. Do, do you get that? That is, the word should should propel us to fill the pulpit, not, oh my goodness, I've got to preach Sunday, I better go study the Word. It should be the other way around. The Word should drive us into the pulpit, never the pulpit driving us into the Word. Well, I love that statement, but I say that to say this. What I want to say to you in these next few minutes is something um, that, that drives me to the pulpit. One of the characteristics of the Roman church was that they were filled with all knowledge. And by the way, that's not a, that's not a reference to the academic. Um, it's the same statement that Jesus makes in John seventeen three, And he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. Listen to that, guys. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. God. That's what theology is, ladies and gentlemen. It's a, it's a study about who God is. Um, earlier in the book of Romans, uh, in chapter 12, Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, a Christian never acts like a Christian until a Christian first thinks like a Christian. Um, you know, I, I mentioned this last week, um, which I just found... Utterly astonishing that half of the people that attend um, Protestant churches don't know who it was that preached the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, that's almost laughable. But that's just a little Bible fact. I'm not talking about Bible facts. Um, And I don't think Paul was either in Romans 15, 14. I think he was talking about the thing that Jesus says is eternal life. To know you. To know God. Um, the Roman church was filled with knowledge of God. 
Um, several years ago, um, I, I, I had never heard of this author before, uh, before I read this book. And um, I read this book, and by the way, this book became so talked about that he wrote four more. <laughs> and they're all somewhat in the same vein in terms of topics. Um, David Wells is a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, and um, he spoke at Second Pres three or four years ago, and I went over to listen to him, and he uh, is a much better, much better book writer than he is a speaker, I can tell you that, but um, years ago, I got a hold of this, this book. And by the way, David Wills is still alive. And, and um, again, he started such a conversation with this book that he had to follow it up. And um, I think the second one was um, God in a Wasteland or God in the Wasteland. The reality of truth in a world of fading dreams. That was the second one. But this was the first one. No place for truth. Or whatever happened to evangelical theology. Um, I could spend the rest of the winter and spring just reading you snatches out of this book. I won't do that to you. But I'm going to read a little. Um, and I'm restraining myself, I promise. Um, what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that one of the things that struck Paul was that the Roman church was filled with all knowledge. Not an, not an academic um, attainment, but they are, it's, the, it's the kind of thing that Jesus was mentioning in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, to know you. They're filled with knowledge, knowledge of who God is. And, and, and as I said a moment earlier, or a few minutes earlier, uh, you never live like a Christian until you think like one. Um, to avoid being conformed to the world, you've got to be transformed first. Not in your circumstances, but in your mind. Keep that guard up, ladies and gentlemen. Don't believe everything you hear. Um. <laughs> let, me, um, let me just read you just a couple of quick snatches. Um, this is just really in the introduction. I mean, I went through the whole book today. Um, let us not think, I said, that we really have a choice between having a theology and not having one. We all have our theologies. The question at issue then is not whether we will have a theology, but whether it will be a good or bad theology. All of you have got one. The question is not whether you have one. The question is whether it's a good one or a bad one. He says this, um, he says, in the intervening years, I have watched with growing disbelief as the evangelical church has cheerfully plunged into astounding Theological illiteracy. I have watched with great alarm as the evangelical church has knowingly and willingly 
plunged. Wish I'd have written that. Plunged into astounding theological illiteracy. The reason that theology is disappearing has little to do with technical skills of the fine-tuners and much to do with the state of the church. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this is the last, I mean, I'm going to read more later, but for right now, he says one sentence. When we believe in nothing, we open the doors to believe in anything. Um, guys, the, the um, um, thesis of this book is very simply, as you might have picked up already, um, it's pretty simple, but it's very disturbing. And his thesis is simply this, that evangelicalism, of which we call ourselves a part, evangelicalism as a religious force in American life is either dead or it is in the process of dying. And then he says, evangelicalism as a force in in, in American life is either dead or dying because... Because it has abandoned any serious commitment to truth. He's not saying that evangelicalism is dead as a as a sociological force or 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 presence. He's he's because the evangelicals have lots of churches and lots of members and a good deal of money. But he's, what he's saying is that in evangelicalism, the thing that's become important is no longer truth. It's technique. Technique has replaced knowledge. It's not truth that is what's so longed for in the evangelical church. It's technique. Uh, if you're going to have a successful church, it doesn't make any difference what you're, what you're saying. As long as you've got a nice marketing strategy. As long as you have adopted some kind of um, Madison Avenue slick. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the um, Crystal Cathedral, which a lot of you know, I mean, it's gone now. It's sold, they sold it to a mall. But if you're my age, you remember the Crystal Cathedral. That whole idea should have been utterly laughable. To the evangelical world. Instead, it was emulated all over the country. Because, as I think, get that guard up. Because, as David Wells says, we've abandoned any serious commitment to truth. Here's my concern for evangelicalism, including Gracie Van is that we've lost confidence. 
that truth is even available. We're not going to be found saying anything sharp, anything definitive, anything... Let me just stay with that word, definitive. Because we're not real sure that truth exists. And if it does, then it's a little spongy. And it, and it can flex, you know, depending on the situation that you're in. And so, we're never going to denounce anything like homosexuality. Or we're not going to denounce... We're not going to say anything that's definitive. Because we've lost our confidence that truth even exists. Let me tell you why I'm doing this, ladies and gentlemen. Because Paul says that one of the things that he commends in the Roman church is that they were filled with all knowledge. How many churches do you know, including this one, that that could be said about? Could it be said about us? Well, if not, I think, at least in terms of analysis, one of the reasons that it cannot be is because we have adopted some kind of media deluge and we've just bought right in. Truth doesn't exist. Um, we are losing confidence in the power of the truth of God. Of course, blessed by the Holy Spirit of God. <clears throat> We're losing any confidence we ever had that the truth of God is enough to make a difference in this culture. Here's why I want you to keep your guard up. I was in a meeting today and, and um, two fine men, fine men, fine brothers. And um, one of them works at a very well-known church. If I were to mention it, most of you would. And um, he took me out to lunch today because he wanted me to write him a check for $50,000. He asked me for $50,000. He said, he asked me specifically for $50,000. Because they want to plant churches. That's a good thing. That's a very laudable, applaudable, good thing. And, I, and I'm all for them. And then they went on to tell me about how the culture is... I mean, it's got this whole language that you've got to learn about... You've got to be outward looking and you've got to, I mean, this is the one that got me. I mean, but there was all this language about um, the culture and, 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 um, and we have to, and um, we have to exegete the culture, I was told. You know what the word exegesis is? It's something... Well, you know, when I'm, when I'm preparing a sermon, I'm supposed to take the text and exegete the text. I'm supposed to dive into the text, figure out what's there, and, you know, draw it out. That's what exegesis is, okay? Well, they were telling me to exegete the culture. And I looked at him and I said, 
what the heck with exegeting the culture? Why don't we have to exegete the scriptures? And now, 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 please don't misunderstand me. This is a fine man. But it was like, you relic. That's, that's why I wonder, ladies and gentlemen, whether you ought not, you ought not form some kind of committee to replace your pastor. I, I'm serious as a heart attack, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not kidding because I wonder if I know what I'm talking about anymore. Because um, here I am saying, well, you know, just, just put some people in the pulpit that know and love the Lord Jesus and love his word and just let them fly. Well, that's not going to happen. You've got to exegete the culture. And I, and I said to this guy, I said, let me tell you something. In my, in my heart of hearts, the thing that I think this generation that's way down beneath mine, you know, I'm a 65-year-older, and I, you know, the thing that the 20-year-olds really want, even though they might not be in touch with me and able to say it, is somebody tell me the truth. Would somebody please just tell me the truth? Listen to this. <clears throat> That is what theology is all about. It is about seeing the truth of God, seeing the gaping chasm that lies between the truth and the nostrums of modernized society. Seeing how to practice that truth in this world. The assumption that this is an elitist preoccupation is, a mistaken, is as mistaken as the assumption that Christianity is an elitist faith. All are summoned to believe. Though some are able to grasp the implications of that belief for the modern world more profoundly than others. I'll, I'll buy that. And all are summoned to understand the rudiments of theology. Though some may be able to go on and plumb its profundities. Without theology, however. There is no faith. No believing. No Christian hope. And the church's loss of preoccupation with theology goes a long way toward explaining its current weakness. It has inadvertently exchanged the sensibilities of modern culture for the truth of Christ. They would no more let me, no more ask me to, by the way, I don't want to do it, but I mean, they would no more want somebody, me planning a church, this outfit, than the man in the moon. Because I'm, a, I'm out of touch with the culture. And I am, ladies and gentlemen. Put me down as guilty as charged. I don't boast in that. I read an article yesterday about a woman who came out of lesbianism and came to know Christ. No. Are we adults in here? I hope. This is kind of, I said this to my wife, she's going to die. But you know, I, I've told you I'm a terrible counselor. I've told you. I've already told you. I've warned you. I've warned you. And, and um, you know, if, if someone who is struggling with homosexual tendencies come to see me, and let's say it's a male, 
Well, I know how to fix that. You know, just get your girlfriend. And this, this article that I read yesterday said, that is so awful. Because the brokenness is so deep. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if, it's come, if, you're, if you're talking about that kind of sensitivity, I want that. I want to be able to understand that, yes, so that I can apply the right balm. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm suggesting that the Christian church today has exchanged confidence in the truth of God's word to change society they have substituted for it technique, strategy. I'm sick of it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sick of it. I don't want to talk about your strategies anymore. Just get yourself a Bible and sit before God. Figure out what he has to say. Pray for the fullness of the Spirit and go teach it. Now, if that won't do it, then you need to form a committee. And you need to get yourself an altogether new preacher. Because I don't know of any other way. I got four minutes. I got one thing to tell you. Um, one of the things that he does in this book is that he analyzes seminaries and seminarians. You know what a seminary is. They train preachers there. I was once a seminarian. From 72 to 75. Um, and um, in this book, he, he is asked, he's, he's a seminary professor. This guy's been at Gordon-Conwell, um, a, a very respectable seminary. He's been there for 35 years. And he was asked, Have you ever, do you ever see any differences in the incoming classes of seminarians? And he said, oh, yes. <clears throat> and he mentions four Differences that he sees in seminarians. First, oh, well, I'll wait there. First, each class, no, each entering class was more biblically illiterate than the last. Second, each class seemed to be filled with more individuals who were swamped with their own personal problems and thus were thinking mostly about themselves rather than about their studies or how they might help others. Third, they had a greater sense of their own personal rights or entitlements. They expected everything to be done for them. And fourth, they were sold out. They were sold out to and mostly uncritical of the surrounding secular culture. And what, he was, what his premise was, and I, I, I could find that, um, but he's saying, you know, as the seminaries go and the preachers go, so goes the church and... Um, uh, and so he's saying that's what's uh, that's what our seminaries are producing, and that's where they're coming out, and yada yada yada. I mean, I, I kind of agree with that um, premise. Um, uh, yes, 
I shall go on to argue that one can make a virtual correlation between the degree to which the clergy are professionalized and the degree to which they will have forfeited or deliberately abandoned their fundamental task of being brokers of truth. Now let me read you this, and I'll quit. The result... Oh, this is, this is right up here. He says, It is not truth that is wanted, but technique. Management by technique has come to replace management by truth. The result of all this, according to two men, both of them who teach at Duke, is a practical atheism, regardless of whether it is the liberals or the fundamentalists who are busy at it. It is an atheism that reduces the church to nothing more than the services it offers or the good feelings the minister can generate. In other words, where professionalization is at work in the clergy, there the ministry will typically be deprived of its transcendence and reduced to little more than a helping profession. The kind of sentimentality it offers, they declare, has become the most detrimental corruption of the church and ministry today. Without God, without the one whose death on the cross challenges all our good feelings, he challenges our feelings. He doesn't stroke them. I'll start again. Without without the one whose death on the cross challenges our good feelings, who stands beyond and over against our human anxieties, All we have left is sentiment, a saccharine residue of theism in demise. A saccharine residue of theism in demise. It is the kind of sentimentality that wants to listen without judging, that has opinions but little interest in truth, that is sympathetic but has no passion for that which is right, It is under the guise of piety, indeed of professionalism, that pastoral unbelief lives out its life. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you this whole idea of being full of goodness. Is directly tied to being filled with all knowledge. It is the overpowering knowledge of being owned by a transcendent God that forms character, ladies and gentlemen. He said this. When God's people are no longer compelled by God's truth, they can be compelled by anything. Here's my final quote, but this is not from Wells. This is from Jacques Ellul. He's a French theologian, but he said this. 
anyone wishing to save humanity today must first of all save the word. Anybody wishing to save humanity today must first save an interest in, commitment to, love for, study of, application in, living by the Word of God. to the devil with your wonderful techniques. If that's not what Gracie Van wants, and by the way, I, I believe it is. I'm not trying to, this is not a play for sympathy. I mean, but I'm telling you, that's what I am. Um, and if that doesn't do it, and by the way, he, he says on numerous occasions, This whole interest is shrinking, shrinking, shrinking all over the so-called professing Christian world. Yeah, it is. It is. And we're cranking out seminarians who um, tell you it's all right to think that the truth is spongy. We've got to stop. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will work within us um, such a a thoroughgoing uh, interest in and love for uh, the truth that we would never be found guilty of um, devaluing it, um, replacing it, um, altering it, but that we might find that all of our feelings are confronted by it, that all of our definitions are formed therein, and that our lives are supposed to be overtaken by the knowledge that we belong to a transcendent God. And that is our hope for transformation. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.